0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. So today we're doing a kind of uh, general politics hot takes episode. Uh, And we're going to start with kind of a broad strokes picture of the presidential uh, primary in the Democratic Party. Uh, because there's been a lot of discussion, you know, Bernie is in, Elizabeth Warren is in, approximately 14 quadrillion random Democrats from around the country, Jay Inslee from Washington, uh, John Hickenlooper, who certainly will win the most comical name contest uh, among all uh, the candidates. I mean, candidates. Say, th-
0: say, that, say that five times fast,
1: uh, no, but really, I,
0: Hickenlooper, is that the name?
1: Hick and looper, yep.
0: Can we both say it five times fast? Ready? Ready? Uh, one, two, three, go. Hick and looper. Hick and looper. Hick and looper. Hick and looper, hick and looper, hick and looper. Everyone should easier, play it at home.
1: It's easier than you think it's it's That's true. It doesn't have the tripping up um, you know, you make a good tongue twister, it has to be sounds that are difficult to make one after the other. That's actually uh, hick, hick and, and is quite looper, a nice a nice yeah. ring. It's yeah. a. it's like a some it's like a poetic meter to it. You know, Actually,
0: that, it's quite nice, now that we say it a lot.
1: Hick and like looper. Name. You know, it could be ancient Greek there. May and looper. That's the first line <laughs> we gotta of got to get Dante
0: Iliad. back on to say, Hick and looper. Yeah. Oh, boy. The at okay. Reed
1: College, they teach you... The, the only ancient Greek I know is the first line of the Iliad. Um, no, no
0: kidding. Do it. Can you do it?
1: I just read about, uh, about half of it. Do it again but it goes I probably fucked that up horribly but you can't That's call me. The open that, you can't call me open. on it because all the ancient no. Greeks are dead and no one knows if I've actually done it done it uh incorrectly
0: except Dante Dante knows
1: well he could probably you know give me the sort of received wisdom about <laughs> you know how they think but it's a dead language. Um, it's not where were nice, we?
0: So, true, yeah, there's a big 2020, we got field distracted. For the, for yeah, the yeah.
1: There, there's a gigantic cast of moderates in there. There's the one, <laughs> the one left, like, like unequivocally left candidate, Bernie Sanders. Don't spoil it,
0: don't spoil it. We're gonna place all these people in categories, soon. right? Right, it's fun. yeah, but
1: but we gotta, you know, I think we can sort of put them on the Little spectrum teaser? generally. Then yeah. you, then you have a kind con- um. You know, you're, you're kind of Brandeis antitrust candidate, Elizabeth Warren, and then you yep. have this undifferentiated mass of people who are sort yep. of like on board maybe with bits and pieces of the other two traditions, but don't really have a ton of credibility. So- and you're
0: teasing a little bit of, of a great taxonomy from a four-part series you did uh, last year, right? Wasn't it last year? Yeah. So so there's a four-part series of the different kind of ideological strains or categories that you saw within the de- democratic movement or democratic party um, kind of writ large uh, that you see as ideologically distinct. And, and that could be, I think, very helpful. And like you said, actual politicians can shift over time. They can shift in their rhetoric. They can say one thing and do another. But in terms of what, what actually is done um, – we we could uh, properly fit people into categories in, in this way to help illuminate um, and differentiate. I think.
1: Yeah, and so there are basically four. There's there's three big categories and one sort of unfilled category. Mm. Um, maybe we can start from right to left. You on on the right of the party, you have neoliberals, and this is. You know, this is Hillary Clinton and her career as a public servant. Today, Joe Biden, unequivocally the neoliberal candidate. And neoliberalism is all, like, this is basically a descent of classical liberalism in the 19th century. You know, the the liberals of David Lloyd George um, and uh, Herbert Spencer, um, that type of tradition. Emerging from Adam Smith, David Ricardo, you know, the classical economists. And that's all about sort of political democracy and economic kind of royalism. The capitalist, uh, you know, domination of the system. And, uh, you know, sort of laissez-faire economic policy, deregulation, low taxes, no unions, um... You know, incentives for job creators in the modern parlance, to where you know in our in our episode with Thomas Friedman, we talk you know he talks about grow the pie. Democrats, that's a false slogan, but in terms of the way they present themselves, that's what they're you know that that's their basic kind of ideology, and um, you know, that's been a strong tradition in the Democratic Party. Uh, I would say. From the mid 1970s, you know things were a little bit muddled up through the you know you had conservatism in the party, but it was mostly racial conservatism. You know there were a lot of Democrats in the South who were like violently racist, but also had like fairly lefty economic views. You know so so long as that didn't interfere with their racism, some some of them even like uh, Hugo Black famously was a member of the KKK. But then later renounced his racism um, after serving, you know, FDR, and he was he became like a real racial liberal when he was appointed to the Supreme Court. Um, but so you know, in the Democratic Party from like basically the mid nineteen seventies, a neoliberal tradition is all about that: Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, deregulate, cut taxes, cut welfare, push people into the market institutions. All all social policy has to be. Uh, um, achieved through market mechanisms and the only you know what we must do the kind of core of it i would say the core neoliberal moral tenet is that humanity must discipline itself to the self-regulating market instead of the other way around that if people are poor they need to they need to you know pull themselves up by their bootstraps and uh you know move to a new city or whatever instead of changing the economy so that they aren't poor anymore.
0: And and there's a lot of interesting things to be discussed here because <clears throat> this is a term that a lot of people think is meaningless or amorphous, not understanding that the term has a history, of course, and and not understanding that um, there there is an actual political philosophy and a certain uh, understanding of, of the... <laughs> The the role of markets and capital uh, as substituting for politics, and 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 so if you have, because um, you talked about Reagan and Thatcher, so people might say, well, but aren't they just neocons or concert? What's the difference between neocons and neoliberals and so forth? And and how can you have Bill Clinton and Thatcher as in the same category, right? So, uh, you know. Bill Clinton, of course, the famous triangulator, became famous for uh, phrases, catchphrases like, the era of big government is over. And and I think that speaks, don't you think, to what neoliberalism really is, which is, you you might differ from conservatives with respect to non-economic issues, right? Like um, identity politics, in terms of race and gender and so forth. But when it comes to fundamental questions of uh, Allocations of uh, allocation of resources and and who makes decisions over economic reality and when it comes to economic justice, um, there is this this notion that government should stay out of it as much as possible and the role of government is to to aid the markets in allocating things through the invisible hand in, in a way that's deferential to, to to that flow of capital. Wouldn't, was that is that fair? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's. That's basically accurate, you know, with with the sort of provision that you know, for people who have read their Karl Polanyi, the idea that the state should stay out of anything is is like a logical impossibility. Um, but yes, you know, you have left neoliberals and you have right neoliberals. You know, the the weird thing about America, as compared to a lot of cons- a lot of uh, European countries. Um, especially like uh, you know Germany and Austria, is that you know f- for most of like the kind of last third of the 20th century, both parties basically accepted kind of classical liberal tenets as their foundational uh, political ideology, and you know so the 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 right neoliberals were all about cutting, uh, you know, just saying like no welfare. Just get rid of all the supports for the poor and just like use the discipline of starvation and desperation to force people into market institutions. And the left neoliberals were like, Well, you know, you don't want people to starve, but you want to sort of like structure their incentives such that you know that they get paid more. You know, poor people get their income topped up through the EITC. Like, this is a classic neoliberal move, Bill Clinton. In the mid 1990s, he cuts traditional welfare, which is just like this little little tiny scraps of income to the to very poor mothers, and it was just a straight up government handout. And he replaced it with the EITC, Earned Income Tax Credit. Um, and the in the context of you know like like not having the EITC, the EITC is okay, right? But the thing about that was that it it took income away from the extremely poor like the very poorest people in the country moved it to the people who are or like just like a little bit below the poverty line people who have a job and it's just it pays shit and like those people need help but they don't need help as much as the very very poorest people and it's like that that you know they're saying like, oh just you know we're giving this government handout quote unquote just this this Like straight up transfer from the state to poor people. Like, that's bad. What you have, if you're going to do a handout, it's got to be through this, through the market institutions and this kind of neurosis, you know. And so that, that I think is so it's like you're the left neoliberals try to alleviate the devastation of capitalism, but they always have to do it through market institutions. And therefore, they're. Uh, their efforts are always circumscribed and, and you know, in, in many cases, like basically crippled when you're talking about poverty, because poverty is caused by a lack of market income. And so you can never That's do right. it through market institutions, because... the No, like, no, and what... what, what <laughs>
0: go ahead. What's fascinating is, and this is a distinction that I think becomes very interesting, is the actual analysis of of how human nature and this political economy uh, interacts, the assumptions are very similar. Um, But what you have with the left neoliberals as opposed to the right neoliberals is like a little bit of, oh, compassion. But the, the same overall moral judgment and analysis of what causes poverty, actually, in a weird way, it's like, oh, if only people... Right. We're uh, responsible. We should reward and incentivize because the whole notion of incentives suggests that it's like lack of individual personal motivation. And so if we just like hang the carrot in front of the the lazy person's face, they'll like chase after the carrot. Right. <laughs> so it, it's, it's like both the same diagnosis of what's causing poverty uh, as the right. And it's the same uh, moral condemnation that handouts aren't deserved because those people are just lazy. Right. And, and so it, it is actually way more similar to the reactionary, right, than you might otherwise think. But there's this kind of soft compassion, which is kind of this condescending like, well, we, we, we don't want to totally screw these people over, even though they're lazy and, and you know, should be shamed into acting better. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it, 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 it is almost indistinguishable.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, it's just like a slight difference in priority, but the basic foundational political economy is very similar between Obama and Reagan, you know, the, and, like, they basically share the same assumptions.
0: There's a um, reason that Obama loved Reagan in, in, his, in his actual – well, his praise of Reagan was in Reagan's ability to speak to both sides and bring people together in, in unity, which is, is kind of weird. But, uh, but so, so, so to be fair to Obama, he didn't praise him for, for specific policy issues, but there is a way in which they, they did see the world, I think in very similar ways. Uh, you know, I wonder if we can't play, you know, the, the kind of Jeff Foxworthy, and this is probably dating us. Cause I don't know if anyone knows who he is anymore. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you might be a redneck if like, if you do this, you might be a redneck. We could do that with uh, neoliberalism. You might be a neoliberal if that could be fun. Yeah. If you have anything. So, if you think that the solution to public education is to create a competition and a race, a race to the top, you might be a neoliberal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. If you if you think the solution to to poverty is to um boost up uh education credentials then you might be a neoliberal.
0: <laughs> if you think that the problem with mass incarceration is uh the lack of uh body cams and uh reporting, you might be a neoliberal.
1: If you think that the 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 problem with financial regulation is that it didn't capture the true value of financial allocation from from uh, Wall Street properly. Um, <laughs> you might be a neoliberal.
0: This is fun. I I invite our audience to come up with their own and submit them. We can we can read off the best ones. You next could time probably
1: think of some better ones. I'm yeah my, yeah. Well, to be Swiss fair,
0: I, to be fair, we just came up with this off the top of our heads just now. So. Yeah,
1: but this maybe makes for a good transition point to. Our second school of thought, which is the Brandeis school. Um, this these are the trustbusters. Uh right. Lewis. Oh, but Lewis real quick Br- b-
0: before we get b- before we get there, should we tell everyone the, the 2020 candidates that are neoliberals? It's the biggest category, so it's kind of hard to do. But like yeah. you said Joe Biden. You said um well Hillary's not running, but like she typifies it. Corey Brooker strikes me as a classic neoliberal. Yeah, he has some progressive uh, policies here and there, and we can get to what happens if your typical person in a category has one thing that's outside of it. But like Cory Booker, Joe Biden, I don't know who who else um, would you would you say? Let's see.
1: Um, I would say at this this point, who else is is declared? uh, Kirsten Gillibrand is. It's, it's you know sort of like talking a good game on certain things and then kind of retreating you know fundraising on Wall Street. Um, the yeah, Pete Buttigieg. How, I don't know. How the, how
0: the, <laughs> that was a good one. That that was such a bad pronunciation. He that who in the must not be named. Really
1: Pete, Pete, Pete butthole. Um, (laughs) That one mayor guy who looks like a gigantic baby. Um, Anyway, if everyone will stop heckling me, I could get my thoughts in order here. There we go. I would say virtually everyone except for the big, big two. Uh, that we'll discuss later are neoliberal to some degree or another, there you and go. you know you you can see the neoliberal dogma when when
0: you when you, people Oh, like Klobuchar! Jump. Klobuchar for Klobuchar sure is a great yes. example. Yes,
1: there you go, there you go. That's perfect. No like green town new hall. Deal. No, yes. <laughs> No free college. we can't afford free college. It would cost sixty billion dollars, which is coincidentally less than the annual budget increase of the US military just in the last year. <laughs> we We spent 13 billion on an aircraft carrier where the uh, bomb bomb uh, elevators and the catapults don't work and uh, you know, but that's about defending America by uh, something. So
0: if if people want to know what neoliberalism is, Amy Klobuchar is perfect because it all it becomes about like personality, and I'm willing to stand up like in my words to Donald Trump, and and I think what he's doing is unjust. And then when it comes to actual policy that would help people's lives, I don't we'll see. I don't know. I mean, don't rock the boat. <laughs> yeah, and I see.
1: it's like the the real uh the The real sort of like moral center of like neoliberalism is you know there 's that that the like acronym like tan there 's no such thing as a free lunch that 's like a very core premise to this kind of thinking and it 's that like uh you know this this is the this is the basic motivation behind deficit scaremongering that you can 't um you know the like times are times are tough whatever times happen to be they're always tough and that the american people need to <laughs> tighten their belts and they need to yep. d- they need to be austere and strict and they need to be p- good little protestant fucking bees and they need they need to um you know sacrifice and take drink their tough medicine and it's right. it's all about strictness oh, and discipline and austerity I like and what- being... I like what
0: you're saying there with the bees, because it occurs to me that neoliberals love drones. They love bees that are drones. They love drones that bomb people. They just like drones of all kinds.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there is a... on right. the. You may not know this. On the Utah State flag, there is a beehive. Nice. Because it's supposed to be... But th- it's a very different kind of implication, because in that case, the beehive is supposed to be about, like... Collective industry is a sort mm. of like theocratic communism. That was the like underlying very weird and peculiar uh, basis of that, that the state of Deseret before they got basically annexed by the, by the United States. Anyways, setting that aside. So <laughs> you have your neoliberal cohort, basically every candidate to some extent, except for the big two. And one of the big two is Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren's a classic Brandeis uh disciple. Brandeis Justice Brandeis? A, yeah, he was appointed by uh Woodrow Wilson. I think he was the first Jewish person on the Supreme Court. Is that true? I can't remember.
0: It sounds right. But let me look it up.
1: Anyway, so really influential thinker in the early twentieth century. Um He's a Supreme Court justice for most of the New Deal, and he uh, he put forward a sort of like regulated capitalism version of a, a, a kind of ide- basic ideology that would come to play a, a, I think, a decisive influence on the on the New Deal like structure, um, you know, because. In the early New Deal, they they tried a lot of, like, pretty radical experiments and economic planning and stuff, and they mostly kind of folded up, like, the National Industrial Recovery Act, and they had this, like, big bureaucracy turning out all these regulation codes and endorsing sort of monopolies, and it it just, like, didn't really work, and then it got declared as unconstitutional. So they tried a different approach, you know, after that kind of didn't work um, with basically antitrust and regulation and the idea there is that number one you know in any sort of market you want to have like a decent number of competitors doesn't mean you just sort of like split things up to so that you know there are like millions and millions of businesses but it means that, you know, when you start seeing real concentration, so, like, for example, uh, I think d- with the purchase of t- uh, 21st Century Fox entertainment uh, assets by Disney after they acquired LucasArts, um, that will be, like, 50% of the box office revenue in the country, probably, will be owned by Disney. So that seems that, like a know, lot. Yeah. That's a slight... And so you're saying... Basically, you just carve up the business. You don't even have to do it as a regulator. You just order the business to do it. Say, so you break yourself up into two or three parts. Because we want to say, you know, no more than 10% of this market can be uh, accounted for by one business. And we don't even really care uh, how you do it. You just make sure that this happens. And then the other thing, is regulated competition is about structuring the market to make competition happen along socially positive axes right so if if you're uh you know thinking about competition you can have competition happening with sort of like monopolist competition where uh you know the the like how uh, Jeff Bezos drove uh, diapers.com out of business by undercutting them. Or you could have the sort of competition where if you're like a, a freight rail company and you have somebody that you want to exploit, you know, you'll charge them a different price. And so... The Brandeis people advocated building up this like big regulatory state to sort of manage the capitalist competition such that it wasn't happening in a way that just generally harms society. And, um, right, Right. you know, there's a lot to be said about this, but I think you know, they leave out some things, but an important conclusion is that. Like this is a pretty successful way of managing a country. Like when the New Deal more or less settled into Brandeisian lines in the late 1930s, like that lasted until the 1970s. Um and it really basically worked all right. You know, they were regulating, you know, trucking and and railroads and airlines and you know, service uh quality. It, you know, improve steadily. Um, neoliberals, like when they deregulated airlines, they point to the price decreases that happened afterwards. It's like, Oh yeah, look at this. Look, this was great. But if you extend the chart to before the deregulation happened, it's like the trend just followed what was happening already, you know, yeah. and it probably yeah. didn't do anything. And so like, if you build up a competent bureaucracy and you sort of like try to you know like split up the um you know the 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 markets into uh you know so that no no one and probably like the biggest the biggest kind of political aspect of this is that you prevent any one business from becoming so overwhelmingly influential that it can basically dominate the politics of an entire region or the entire country. You know, it's like everyone pays attention to, to Jeff Bezos, you know, or during the financial crisis, it's like, Oh, Oh, the, you know, Oh, these big banks are in trouble. And like, this is a national problem and we have to cater to them because they're so big. Meanwhile, the FDIC is eating, Hundreds and hundreds of small community banks, and nobody gives a fuck because they're small. Right. And we know right. that the system too big, too them, big to contagion. fail. Right? Yes, yes, too big to fail. Right? Brandeis, he would absolutely understand that instantaneously. And so, you know. It leaves a lot out. we'll get into that, but I think that his uh his basic perspective it really has proved itself in a way that you could say, well, for example, like Soviet communism has not um it It does work pretty well,
0: yeah, that's interesting. I mean it depends what you mean in so far as like it didn't work in as it didn't maintain its hold on the right so so it's kind of like i I'm imagining um you know, uh, pinning down a kitten that you need to like give a kind of um, <laughs> a shot to or or something like it's like, well yeah, for a certain amount of time I think I could do this, but pretty soon it's inevitable a kitten's gonna like spring out of my arms. You know, and and maybe there's there's some way in which uh capitalism will allow itself to be corralled uh, for a time, but maybe it's inevitable that that just won't hold. Like, in other words, it, the, the question really is, is this approach something that is sustainable or is it something that inevitably gets defeated and, and there needs to be a different tactic or strategy? And maybe maybe that's something that could lead us to think about the the ways in which ideologically these different groupings speak both to Theory and strategy. So if if theory is kind of the, the critique of what's wrong with society as is, and uh, simultaneously a vision of the good life, like what, you know, there might be on the left, a lot of similarities in terms of uh, at least the vision of the good life. And maybe the critique differs, um, because sometimes the critique then feeds into what the solution is. But then when it comes to kind of the, the plan of attack to, to effectuate change, that's where we get to this question of what's going to work over the long term, and and if if the the Brandeisians um, you know are correct about the problem, but there's something about the nature of capitalism that won't let this approach hold. Maybe there needs to be a more fundamental restructuring of the of the economy, um, and who owns um, you know who has the power and who owns the means of production. I don't know. We can we can get to that, but it's an interesting question to separate the the the, the different things you know in, in terms of what. Uh, the problem is what's better, um, and and then how to get there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say two things about that. Um, the f- The first one is that like there's never any end to politics. I think, you know, that's right. Like the like uh, constant as, struggle, as Tony Ben once said. You know, every generation. At, he was talking about the the Putney debates back in like the 1600s, and um, he's, it's just concluded that every generation has to fight the same battles again and again and again. Um, I think the other thing I've learned from all this, and I'm not a historian
0: uh, or an academic in any way, every generation has to fight the same battles again and again and again. There is no destination called justice or democracy, and if you catch a train driven by the right man, you'll get there. Every generation has to fight it. And that's the interest of the Putney debates and the English Revolution, that we can draw from debates that occurred long before we were born, things that are relevant to us and will be equally relevant to our grandchildren.
1: But I think that, uh, you know, those... So, you know, you can never rule—you can never find a sort of, like, end-state utopia, you know, the sort of end of history. But I think on the other hand, the point is well taken that, uh, you know, political permanence is a very a strong—you uh, know, something you have to rate very highly, I would say. And I think this brings us nicely into the second ideological category, which is the Social Democrats, and here's the, the second of the big two, and the leftmost presidential candidate, I would say, almost certainly, uh, is Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, he calls himself a democratic socialist. He's really just a social democrat. He's not against regulation, but his main thing is welfare and taxes, right? You know, you, you think about Bernie, it's all about the millionaires and the billionaires and <laughs> Medicare for all system. You know, so
0: that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. Maybe we could uh, interview Bernie one of these days. But let's
0: do it. He, retwe- he retweets you and shares your stuff on Facebook enough, after all.
1: Well, his staff does. I don't, you know.
0: No, it's Bernie the whole time, damn it.
1: <laughs> um, don't
0: demystify the burn. <laughs> but um, if you look at
1: um, the, 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 the thing about welfare that is not true of regulation, I would say, is that welfare is m- much more permanent. So well, let me back up a second. The thing about, like, social democracy, like, this is—all these concepts are pretty nebulous. You know, the, the, the Bolsheviks called themselves the Social Democratic Russian Workers' Party or something like that in, like, 1903. But— uh uh, I would say it's fair. It's fair to say social democrats in a sort of broad Western context means welfare and high taxes, tax and transfer. You get your universal welfare state, cradle to grave. You know, you you, you your your baby benefits, your your baby box, maternity grant, uh, child allowance, um, free daycare, uh, uh, free college, unemployment. Um, And retirement, you know, all that stuff.
0: How's this, Ryan? How's this? It it, it anticipates Polanyi's understanding that um, economics is embedded, right? It's necessarily embedded in politics and society, and there are shocks that that will be uh, really deleterious and harmful to social life, if there aren't these kind of um, shock absorbers put in place ahead of time, right? And and, and it's just uh, the commodification of certain uh, areas of life that are especially traumatized when they're commodified or when they're prone to market forces. Uh, but other like the market can operate and allocate resources, except in these few spheres from from like health and education and environment and shelter, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and so you know. The sort of motor of capitalism in the classical context, you know, the, 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 this, a lot of people on Twitter and so forth tend to mock the Soak dams and so forth. But you look at the motor of capitalism in the, in classical industrial revolution society, and it is the coercion of the working class through the threat of destitution. You must work. Um, and that includes, you know, like four-year-old kids we're gonna make a four-year-old kid size coal bucket that the co- that the child can drag up from the mine we're people have... think
0: that the five-year plan is a communist thing it's actually co- it's capitalistic the five-year plan is to get five-year-olds to work
1: yeah yeah pregnant women dragging the 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 coal bucket down the down the mine and so um you know the the if if you take if you take the sort of like social democratic project to its logical extent and to, to say like a completed a cradle to grave welfare state that is a pretty radical institution and it's and you know it, because it more or less removes the compulsion of the threat of destitution because at any point if you are ever unable to work then the government will catch you you know, if, if you're injured, if you are a child, if you are old, if you're disabled, um, if you are unemployed, if, you know, you get fired or you quit your job, the government will catch you. And it makes it a much more decent, much more egalitarian place. And also... You know, to get back to my original point about political permanence, it's a much more um, sticky institution. Regulations are easy to get rid of because nobody knows what the fuck they are. You know, you, you need a pretty disciplined movement behind them. And it's, and it's pretty remarkable how long the New Deal regulatory state lasted. Uh, you know, it was more or less 40 years from the mid-30s to the mid-70s, Um But, you know, once they got rid of him, it was like, uh, 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 like, complicated things are happening. Uh, It's about this and that. And it was hard to defend. But you're talking about welfare. It's like specific payments to specific people in a very clear, very legible fashion. And when you start trying to take that away, people get fucking pissed. And when, you know, like you look at Republicans in the 2017 when they're trying to repeal Obamacare, they didn't even think about touching Medicare. Um, they thought, you know, they, they, they tried sort of quietly cutting Medicaid, which is more politically vulnerable to—because, like, poor people have Medicaid and poor people don't vote. They don't right. vote as much as the rest of the population. But, like, you know, you, you're thinking about the most durable possible institution. It's like everybody gets it. It's good stuff. You know, universal child uh, daycare, universal health care— you know NHS single payer—that spectrum of possibilities—that is the kind of thing that sticks because it—it's it, like every single person knows if I don't get this, my life's going to suck. And they well, will. And
0: not not only that, once that's already delivered, you don't have the right wing critique up op- in operation, which is this: we can't afford this. I mean, do, do you remember the um, kind of? secret undercover right winger that went to a Bernie AOC rally in the Midwest or something. And, and and she was just like totally <laughs> seduced by it, and she went on Fox News and she's like, it was really scary, because I just loved it. They were talking about how I would have free like healthcare and education for my kids and all the and and, and it that was just like great. It was so amazingly like attractive. And then the one caveat was, so thank God I knew that we can't afford this, otherwise I would have been totally on board. And, and that was the only line of defense: is we can't afford this. But if you're already getting it, you know you can afford it. Like that's like it's it's being done already, right? So like once people have it, that they have zero qualms about it at all, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean in the case of healthcare specifically, which I think has more or less shouldered itself to the top of the political agenda because the system fucking sucks so bad, it's it's falling in on itself even for people way 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 up into the upper middle class. You know, rich lawyers and such are like. Christ Almighty! How much does it cost to put my kids on my health insurance? Um, it, it's 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 driving home the fact that America number one already pays enough in tax alone to fund a very decent healthcare system. Then on top of that, we pay enough in private money to fund another healthcare system, um, and the second one more or less is pure waste you know um and it it you know the the implication that we could have better care for less money or even significantly less money and that you could have you know you you could have um no tax increase delete your premiums and have like twenty five percent more money in your pocket plus medicare for all uh it that is a l- literal possibility for this country right now and yeah you know it it's it's like it's like the the it's like hard to explain to people how complex the the the, the horribleness of the system is, but like when you sort of like get into the international comparisons and you say, like, this is what other people have in Canada, which is really, like, what the U.S. would be if we had a proper constitution and not this fucking jerry-rigged piece of shit from the 17th, 18th century. Um, it kind of drives home. And, you know, at any rate, you know, like, the, like this kind of, the kind of welfare stuff, social security... um, unemployment benefits, and to the extent that you can put, you know, Medicaid, very popular, Medicare, very popular, that stuff really uh, sticks with people, you know, because they know what it is it, and they know how much people depend on it.
0: Yeah. And this is where, so, so I think a lot of lefties um, embrace a lot of the policy, proposals that you could classify just purely under social democracy or, or you know social democrat proposals uh, and then a lot of questions i, I mean you know i, I have students who, who are it, it's not helpful that like social democrat and democratic socialist is almost literally the two same words just flipped right like that's just very confusing for my students so like wait a minute which what's the, what's the difference between these things um but it's further difficult to really understand the difference, and, and uh, especially when you have somebody like Bernie, whose proposals fit squarely into social democracy, and yet he claims he's a democratic socialist. So I, I think this is worth teasing out. And as we do it, I would suggest that foreign policy might be key, and, and especially you know we've talked about Carl Schmidt and the friend-enemy distinction especially the understanding of capitalism as a global system and, and the ways in which what we do politically here relate to what we do politically and what everyone does politically globally. Uh, as some people that are are more to the left of your typical social democrats might say, you know, you don't get a Sweden without a Greece, right? Like, like global capitalism uh, permits some people to uh, have this high-quality standard of living with capitalism, but it's required that other places suffer. And, and so there's there an understanding of the interconnectedness within capitalism, uh, that social democracy is something that some people can have, but not something that everyone can have, right? And so so this is my first kind of, like, volley to you to, to see what you think the real difference is, um, even though you wrote about it beautifully. So what do you think? <coughs>
1: Well, so I would start off by – by in, in my sort of particular definitions, uh, s- democratic socialism is – like it builds on the sort of like social democratic tradition. So you start with your completed cradle-to-grave welfare state. And from there, you start thinking about the classic socialist agenda of – you know, public ownership of the means of production. And I think that there's, there's, there's basically two ways you can go about that at this point. You can have state-owned enterprises. Um, you know, we have that in the United States in the forms of the post office and the uh, Amtrak. Um, other countries, you know, Norway... Like sixty percent of GDP is produced by state-owned businesses. Um, that's probably like the high water mark at this point. It's a lot more than China, which is "quote unquote" communist. Um, <laughs> and yeah. you know, then you can think about like like rolling up the, all the wealth in the country into a you know big communal pot. And you could do that in a number of ways. You could say like everything's going to be owned directly by the state. You know, the state's going to direct all the businesses like a little bit more of a Soviet style, though, of course, with a proper democracy behind it, and not a totalitarian right. di- dictatorship. But That's then, key. then you could say you know you could go the Rudolf Hilferding, Matt Brunig route to say that you know finance allows the the uh, the state the 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 democratic people to get their fingers into the national wealth in a much more simple way by just buying up all the equities and, you know, saying like half or three quarters of all the wealth should be owned in some way by the state. And, um, you know, you can have a social wealth fund, which pays out the capital income, the income from people who just own stuff to the broad population as it's done in, in Alaska.
0: And this is still market right. So this is still market socialism, but it's market socialism where you capture, right, capital interests and socialize that, right? You socialize the finance industry to a large degree through the social or sovereign wealth fund. Having is a- that is that
1: yeah having a wealth fund would be a market socialist idea, and I think that's pretty convincing i think i I think markets are a compelling technology, but they, they you know you need to keep an eye on them and- well that 's the key
0: right so as long as markets are subordinate to democratic use of those markets right and and, and it's not uh, the demos or the people that are subordinate to what the markets and those who actually control the markets otherwise. Um, say they dictate in terms of uh, resource allocation and, and production, actually, uh, and decision- So, so, so this is the, the thing that's interesting, right? Because you're saying a lot of things that could be done top down, that could just be imposed. But to what extent do you think democratic socialism is about process and about like really democratizing the decisions over what happens politically? Um, there are things that we're talking about now that we think are inherently more egalitarian in the results. Um, but but what about the, like, dem- democracy, which is ruled by the people, and, and, and what's perhaps distinct from maybe social democracy uh, there? Because it seems to me that, like, there's this, there's this question over what policies are most egalitarian in results, and then what processes or principles of um, – and we talked about this with Robert Hawke a little bit with, with, with the Green New Deal – uh, what things are less about the particular policy put in place, but more about who gets to make what decisions. And, and um, you know, I don't know if co-determination code goes there. That's a Brandeisian thing as well. Uh, or I don't know if, if yeah. you know, s- somehow fostering co-op. So this is where things the, the lines get blurred a little bit. But yep. we, we shouldn't forget the the democratic part of democratic socialism, right? absolutely
1: and th- and this i would say for me is com- absolutely foundational uh you know democracy is the building block on um on, on which you have to build anything good in in the modern context and um you know if you don't have that you don't have anything you you know you look at the soviet dictatorship you know the the millions and millions of people who died under stalin it was because one man had too much power, and there was no accountability. There was no democracy, and it, like it's very straightforward. Like Karl right. Kautsky, who was not a particularly brilliant theorist, pointed out that that was exactly what was going to happen before Lenin ever took power. Uh, yeah. you can't have you can't have power without accountability. That's that's a f- completely fucking non negotiable. And but yes, as you say, you know. That, the New Deal, which is very Brandeisian, but it, it did have a, a very powerful labor element to it, you know, the, the national—it it was kind of weaselly uh, in its, in its <laughs> structure. You know, it was, it was like trying yeah. to sort of tr- create a truce between capital and labor, you know, sort of right. like buy off the workers. But in well, practice, it yeah. did lead to a huge explosion of, of, of labor organizing, and right. in that sense, it was an improvement from the previous status quo. Since become pretty sclerotic, uh, the you know. The, well, that's the... true.
0: And, and look, we, we've talked about this before, but but both Keynes and FDR were explicitly trying to, at that time, save capitalism from destruction because it was yeah. the left or the right that was threatening the kind of economic liberalism and, and that order, that, that kind of... Um, that that form of political economy, and so this was like, well, if if you are going to win against the the far left and the far right, you have to protect against these kind of basically the things that neoliberalism doesn't care about. The tremendous like shocks to the social order that that like unfettered capitalism has. Uh, the reformists like FDR and Keynes are like, no, 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 no. Let's save capitalism by putting these shock absorbers into place. So, but this is an interesting question, right? Because we're so, we are so far from actual socialism. Uh, the social democrats and the democratic socialists are basically on the same page in terms of like what needs to be done. Like before, there's any real fight between the social democrats and democratic socialists, we would have to make so much progress that they're basically identical for yeah. for the near term, right? And that that's what's interesting, and maybe something that we we shouldn't get too kind of uh, divisive on the left over is what you call yourself, because uh, it's going to look very, very similar for a while, basically, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Jesus, if we, could, if we could just get, like, a Green New Deal and some Brandeisian business regulations, like bust up Amazon, bust up Disney, bust up um, Microsoft, Apple? and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know... But, any any business with a market cap over like a hundred billion dollars, bust them up, bust them up.
0: Um, yeah, because like, why the hell not? You know, right? And this is a. That, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, and and as we've talked about before, going after billionaires, we, you know. Normatively it's good enough to say no one should be a billionaire. I don't even care what the like pragmatic reasons might be. <laughs> there are pragmatic instrumental reasons, but just as an end in itself, we should arrest like we should tax the wealthy as a as an end in itself. Uh, it also has all these other good, right? Like second order effects, but, uh, I, I do feel that, that the resurgence of the left is a a resurgence of some type of understanding of the good life that has principles because it's been so kind of like neutered by neoliberal neoliberalism's project is to neuter all principles of justice, um, economically at least, in service of a smuggled-in normative vision of the unfettered market as morally good, right? Um, And and it's just a nice, beautiful thing to see different people on the left with different visions and different um, kind of analyses about what's going to help and what's not, uh, at least reclaiming the moral high ground of saying, look, all this bullshit is so harmful and it's just better not to have power concentrated in a few hands it's so much better to not have grave destitution and this is something that's been going back as we've seen you know for hundreds of years but needs to finally overcome what is i don't know just almost a renewed gilded age right now right
1: yeah yeah and and particularly talking about worker rights um This is a place where I think the Brandeisians and the Social Democrats and the Democratic Socialists can agree that, like, workers should have a vastly strengthened right to unionize and uh, workers should get seats on the boards of corporations. The corporations should be uh, partly run, you know, I would say— Possibly they should be entirely run by their workers, um, that the CEO yes. should be elected from the um, uh, the the managers of the, you know, the, or the, the the workers of the company. I think that would yes. work fine. But setting that aside, definitely should get at least, you know, 40, 50% of the seats on the board. Um, and, you know, the, the legal structure for... For forming a union should be updated, you know, in line with the kind of European best practices, um, the Ghent system and so forth, or like where you, you, you organize by sector, you know, you have a, right. a bargaining thing where it's like you set up the union where whatever exists with the employers and then you extend the contract across all uh, companies in that sector, so on and so forth. Um, and that you know that traditionally has been kind of the heart of lefty politics and that is something I think virtually everyone should be able to agree on is a huge expansion of worker and, rights you know I mean tellingly Obama not in 2009 not, uh, they were they were talking about uh, doing card check you know this minor little fucking giveaway to unions and he just like barely it's like eh, he just gave up immediately and it's like but you know, where's your politician instincts? Union voters vote That's Democrat. Right. It's like, why don't you make some more of them? But no.
0: Well, and, and that has a lot to do with one's uh, understanding in relation to the status quo, right? Like your picture of the world, and so so. And maybe now looking looking back at the, the different categories, we can talk about this. But um, if you don't think current reality is that bad. Right? So 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 if your picture of what is is that things are mostly good, we can like make them a little bit better and people, you know, if they work a little harder and we change this and that, we tinker with the economy a little bit, uh then that's, you know, that's progress. That's good because people are basically this is the land of the free home of the brave, we're we're, we're flourishing for the most part. Yeah, people have mean thoughts in their heads about people from different races, but other than that, you know, like people are a little misogynist <laughs> in their in their kind of right. This is the neo, this is kind of the neoliberal picture of the world, which is everything is is going pretty great. This is you know the Steven Pinker thing. I, oh my God, there's less violence now than there has been in the history of the world, uh, and, and this is the march to progress we're on. And if we just kind of tinker with the levers, and yeah, there's some mean people, but look how fu- you know, the moral arc of the of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice let's just like change the kind of quantitative easing method i don't know whatever <laughs> but like so, so seriously th- then you're not going to care so much right and you're not going to fight you're not gonna because to fight suggests that that what is is untenable and you just can't stand it and it's you need to risk the the, the violence of conflicts so like the the passivity and, and that kind of pacifism politically um now, you could also say more cynically that it's because they're totally funded by the donor class and, and so they don't want to lose power. But let's say just like totally sincerely, the Joe Bidens of the world um, mostly, I think, act the way they do because they don't see. They don't see, they don't feel, they don't understand the actual grave injustices that are pervasive or they don't understand the actual cause of those things, and they think, like Andrew Carnegie, that they're just like a naturalistic inevitability or something like that. So, so it's either this like, kind of uh, lack of hope, which is to say, this is inevitable, we can't do much anyway, so don't rock the boat, or everything's fine, right? Or I'm in bed with the donor class. It's one of those things, Right. But if you see the injustice, if you believe things can change, right, and if you're not in bed with the donor class, then you're going to fight like hell, and then it's just a matter of how to do that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the thing that made the New Deal stick as long as it did uh, was the the political tactics and personality of FDR. You know, he was a a, a wealthy yeah, man yeah. who come from privilege, but he was above all the consummate politician. And he yes. realized what so many Democrats today do not, which is that sometimes being timid is the is the risky option. Yes. And absolutely. That sometimes to be a to 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 cement your political legacy, you have to fight and you have to say you have to start up some shit with with rich people and
0: do you know how much shit Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has gotten from day 1 do you know how much less shit she would have gotten if she like on bended knee just like kissed the ring of of Pelosi and Schumer and was just like just tell me what i need to do i'm a good soldier you know what i mean can you imagine right but she's just out yeah. there throwing bombs not ca- not caring Right. What the consequences are for her career or for whatever. And and those risks are actually part of what make her so successful and so popular.
1: Yes. Yeah. The. the, I I mean, those things go hand in hand today. It's that she's an outspoken uh, critic of the oligarchy that exists in the in the United States. And yes. Um, you know, she says things that, that other, you know, the, re- like most of the rest of the party has been too, dis- too disciplined against to say, like she has sort of broken through the political crust, you know, it's like the, like this, it's like you're looking at a volcano and there's that, the, the cooled lava on the top that's sort of like trying to hold down the, the, the boiling magma underneath. and, Right. Once there's a crack in it, it just like spews out, you know? And, yeah. and that's, the, that's the kind of energy he's tapping into. It's like, yes, I've been waiting so long for someone to just say it like it is, you know? Yes. And that's the kind of thing that builds yes. really deep and long lasting loyalty. It's just not bullshit people and and you know you could be you know you could be a bartender from Queens from that but if you know if you're if you're smart and you're you're an able politician you could be a you know it's like in West Virginia back in the day they used to hang portraits of FDRs like put them over the mantelpiece you know like he's uh, like a you know a
0: portrait That's right. of well, czar and, and there is this <laughs> there is this relationship uh if you will, between the people and their leadership that really matter and the and the left tends to well, it's funny because of course the the left has its its you know, idols and its and its heroes. And um if you're talking about whether it's FDR or Marx or Lenin or what have you, but at the same time the left yeah. also tends to try to um kind of reduce the importance of great leadership or great talents uh, from those leaders and and talk about the the people. And and there's obviously a, a ton of... Um, truth to the importance of the mass movement part of it, right? And like Rosa Parks was not just a random individual; she was trained, right, by the NAACP and was an activist, and and so she was kind of emblematic of a broader movement. Same thing; MLK didn't do the civil rights movement on its own. He was just a particularly great leader, but but he was a great right leader and had amazing rhetorical skill. Right? So so it's both, and and so what you need in these leaders is that they actually reflect and are moved by and responding to the broader movements and the demos that support them. And that's what makes them different from the Donald Trump. The Donald Trumps of the world who explicitly on the right say, uh, I am the winner, I will do it for you. It's about me. And I get you, right? Like I can speak your language and I can speak your kind of like racist, xenophobic, right? All the things that make you realize that I hear your voice, but really the solution is me and how great I am. That's the difference, right? And the the left populism is actually about the leader being kind of actually emblematic and reflective as much as possible of the broader diversity of that that mass leftist movement behind uh, her, right? And and so you'll see Bernie in his just recent launch correct the crowd when they're chanting, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And he'll be like, no, 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 no. That's not about me. It's about you, right? Now, Obama even gave lip service to this. We are the ones we've been waiting for and so forth. But that was just you know, a lot yeah. of lefties I think bought into it, but that was just um, words without actual commitment or meaning behind it. Unfortunately, this slogan. This is just a slogan. Um, and and when you look at like a Bernie, he's been consistent in his actual politics and the moves and risks he's taken over decades, um, from being arrested in Chicago and actually being an activist to his actual political stances and so forth. So that's part of the street cred that I think makes him seem like he's got the integrity to be a real um, representative of the people. But um, yeah, I would say that, you know, the
1: you, you have, you know, the kind of the difference between, you know, what Gramsci would call the organic intellectual and, uh, or organic leader, just someone who is sort of just like channeling and articulating the felt grievances of, uh, and and like political needs of a certain population, and then you have the demagogue. You know, you have people That's who right. are basically like whipping up uh, frenzy and hatred um, amongst a um, you know a, a, a population of people. Your your classic leader party, as Ian Kershaw would say. You know, with Hitler or Mussolini where it's it's all about playing on the on the anti-intellectual sentiments of the crowd and the right. the base, you know, the mob mentality of people. Um and I would say, you know, it's a the there's kind of two there's kind of two things to say in in terms of political leadership, um it's you got to navigate between two things, which is this which is to say that on the one hand, yeah, the, the 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 mass movement is important. It, uh, you know, you you need the people uh, going out, knocking on doors, talking to people, uh, doing the daily work of organizing lots and lots of people. You know, this is a huge country, and it takes it takes uh, you know thousands or millions of people to. To, to really turn it in any sort of way. On the other hand, you really do need the figurehead, the, the kind of, like, in chemistry, there's the, 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 the phenomenon of um, a supersaturated solution where you have, you know, lots of sugar or something dissolved in water, that like more than it theoretically should be should uh be able to contain and you drop a single crystal of of sugar into that solution and it just it just like crystallizes the entire business the whole mass of sugar in that solution and um the i think that a, a good leader ought to think of themselves like that you know to to be like i am not, I am not like the I am not directing everything. I'm not the dictator, but it do matter and the choices that I make are important and you have to think about that because you can't have a mass movement without leadership. And um you know, you you look at how the 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 Mensheviks in during the Russian Revolution Got just totally outplayed by by uh, Lenin's you know more disciplined faction um you know you you have to right. have a kind of coordination process and being you know resentful of that fact is just kind of unrealistic I would say and so you know as we're yep. thinking about these sort of different ideological traditions you know you you, you also have you know it's worth studying. Um, I actually just got today a second volume in in a biography of FDR that was recently published. I forget what the we'll, we'll post it on the description. I can't remember who the author is, but uh you know, he was I think unquestionably the best president in terms of like keeping the country going forward, you know, rolling forward in a sustainable fashion. Best president in American history. And he, be, and that was because he was such a quality politician in all senses of the word. It wasn't. It he had a little bit of cynicism, but he had a little bit of idealism too. And that, you know, the the combination of ability and realistic, like thinking and, um, n- knowledge that the moral foundations of you know the democratic Republic really matter combined to, to create unlike Lincoln, he had a lasting, he set up a lasting political economy, which really persevered until, you know, it was torn apart by the neoliberals. But you know, that, that uh, he's the only one to have done that.
0: That's so that that's very important. And, and which isn't to say that, he could, he could only have been great. And this is, you know, going back to Machiavelli and his virtue, the skill, the virtue and excellence of the leader combines with Fortuna or, or kind of the fortune of circumstance and, and and so forth. But um, not just the circumstance, but the, the actual um, bottom up leftist. So, so like the, the extent to which social democracy became part of our political economy is in part because of the far leftier, um pushing of people on the ground, the more revolutionary socialists. And so so there is a dynamic there at play. So even if and, and I think you're seeing more of this today, even with like the Jonathan Chates, even if what you want is more quote unquote moderate, uh you might appreciate the existence of more radical uh movements to kind of tug the country closer to that center, right? If you will. So, and, and so there is a way in which the, the a particular politician is taking advantage of those broader dynamics as well. But that, that of course, uh, requires them to have that, you know, prudential wisdom and, and, uh, excellence in, in, in kind of political acumen and, and, and skill. So now that, all that's important, all of which is to say that I, I think people today get too hung up on, um, in fighting on this particular policy or that particular uh right like nothing drives me more nuts than debating job guarantee and UBI and and this version of the green new deal as <laughs> if like the whole country is on board with everything, and it's just a matter of ironing out the slate policy differences. Which one, you know, like, can't we just try to push the whole country towards the mindset of a more, like, decommodified, more egalitarian, more liberatory, more democratic politics and, and try to, and great, we can have our intra left fights, but like, it would be awesome for anyone and for everyone to get any one of these things done in the near future. And then like, we can build on that. But, but I think part of what you're saying about what FDR knew, uh, is something we could all learn from, which is sure. Have your own vision of what's ideal, but in, in practice, let's support like anything that pushes us out of this neoliberal order that we're entrenched in currently. Right.
1: Yeah, you you. F. F. D. R. had an unparalleled spider sense for the you know what you could get, and you know the 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 space between what would be ideally necessary and what you could get, and pushing that what you could get as as close as as possible to the what is necessary, and so, it so wasn't there. But like right. he could do that and he could make that calculation. And he could make it in part, as you say, because he had the backing, you know, behind him of lots of people yelling at him from the left and right. so forth. But um at you know, at the end of the day, he was standing at the top of the pyramid and you know, sort of shunting things in that way. And that's a and
0: that's a thing to think about. So so here's a question for you, because and it might be a moot point, certainly, because it seems like Bernie Bernie Sanders seems to have the most, at least anecdotally, um, the strongest support, passionate, devoted supporters. He raises the most money, he has the biggest crowds, and so forth, right but, but so so that that kind of makes it a little bit of a moot point, maybe. But what if that wasn't the case? Like what if it turns out that Kamala Harris really gets the most support? Um, one can certainly I could see a Jonathan Chase of the World or others saying, "Look. Sure. Uh, you know, she seems a little bit less like maybe her integrity and consistency is a little less clear. Maybe sure. She was part of supporting the carceral state, right? Uh, this, that, and the other, but also she seems very savvy and bright and clearly we could, uh, she could be an FDR, right? Because who knows what her actual views are, but certainly she wants power. And if it's, it, it seems clear to her that success and power come from being more to the left. She's going to do that, something like right? So how do you combat that kind of logic, which applies to FDR, right? Probably applies to LBJ, applies to a lot of people. Um, when, at least for me, intuitively, I want to say, uh, I don't know. I'm a lot more secure going with a Bernie or even Elizabeth Warren, who, although Elizabeth Warren says I'm a capitalist – both of them seem quite distinct from the, the rest of the crowd in terms of kind of principle, and I trust them to, to fight the good fight rather than cave when it comes to it. So how do you, how do you evaluate that kind of um, navigating when it comes to actual electoral politics?
1: Well, I would say, um, you know, maybe put a, put a bow on this here since we're uh, over here. We like bows here at Left Anchor. The, we, we love our bows. The... Um, because, you know, there's, there's you have the, the sort of like representational model of the leader and then you have the demagogue model of the leader. And I would say, you know, it seems to me in retrospect that what Obama was doing in 2008 was more or less like demagogue stuff. He was whipping people up with unrealistic expectations that he had no intention whatsoever of fulfilling. Um, And the reason I would, I, you know, I mean, I, I, Bernie real popular. I think he, you know, he's got that dedicated hardcore, but should, should Kamala Harris at this point, uh, you know, she could, I mean, this isn't kind of a problem here because, her record is so so thin. He has two years in the Senate. Um, it, it's it's hard to know what she really thinks, but uh, it's it's you know when you are thinking about uh, a a quality leader, it's hard to you know the the, the thing you want to avoid. The thing that happened with a with with Obama, at least one of the things you want to avoid, is the cynical, you know, people who sort of like raise people's hopes with the deliberate intention of crushing them. And um, absent what, you know, from what I've seen from Kamala Harris, some of it's pretty good, uh, but some of it's not so good. You know, her stuff on, you know, being proud of her record as attorney general incarcerating parents of truant children and so forth. Yeah, it's not so great. And it it suggests to me that, you know, I mean the reason why demagogues exist is that, you know, rhetoric, media and so forth, these can really motivate people for a moment, but you also need that strategic intelligence. You need you need someone who will not fold behind behind sort of like temporary social pressure if they recognize that what needs to happen is something that that is beyond that social pressure to say that like yeah people are really right. pissed at me because I'm yes. doing this this was FDR when he took the took the Amer- took America off the gold standard in nineteen thirty-three, all the economists in the country basically went and were like, "Oh, FDR, you are doing Benghazi," and he was like, he smiled and nodded at them and said, "Oh, thanks very much." And it's like, ah, "Fuck you, <laughs> you, you ingrates!" And he turned out to be one hundred percent correct that that they he didn't need to listen to these these idiots and that, and that that you know is the thing that I think is missing at yet. You know, we got a whole campaign ahead of us. But from sure. the 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 Kamala Harris and the Kristen Gillibrand and so forth, um, you know, I trust Bernie to keep his eye on the ball in terms of the broader uh, political economy. Yeah. I trust Warren to at least be like, you know, she hates bankers, and like that's great. I'm with that, and uh, I think she's at this point like a a clear kind of second best, but. Not by too much. I would definitely be very enthusiastic about voting for her. Um, The rest of them, just don't trust anybody yet. So, you know, we'll see how it happens. And
0: and this is the other thing I want to tell everyone, because I'm really kind of sick of seeing this already. Um, First of all, I see so many former Hillary Clinton supporters saying to Bernie supporters... If Bernie doesn't win, will you support Beto O'Rourke or whomever it is, right? like It's like, first of all, jerks, okay? Uh, The number of Hillary Clinton supporters when she lost to Obama, right, that ended up voting uh, for McCain rather than Obama, that's a a larger percentage than the number of Bernie supporters who defected to Trump, okay? So the irony of the— Yes, by like a good significant amount. So shut up. So just shut up about that. Um, secondly, secondly, uh, there's a vast difference between, as Noam Chomsky said, he says, uh, there's only one party in this country. It's the business party. But there are two wings. And it matters a great deal which wing you you vote for, because a lot of people's lives are affected by that. Um, yeah. And that, even if a neoliberal right, wins, is true. So... We should all support right, whoever the Democratic nominee is as against the re- more reactionary, more harmful version representing the business class. Um, but that being said... We get to control and choose democratically to some extent who that's going to be. So like we should normatively push for the best version uh, of what we want. And so we should fight for someone. And so let's stop talking about what we're going to do when the time comes. Let's let's make the representative uh, be the, the, the candidate that we deserve and, and push that candidate during the campaign in the primary, during the general election campaign. And once they, God willing, win the presidency, push them as far left as possible to be more liberatory, more egalitarian, and more democratic. So that's the end of my little rant.
1: Yeah. I think the basic, you know, we're talking about all these ideologies here. The basic lesson of the, of the 2016 election is this. Uh, Trump was the most unpopular nominee in the history of polling, going back to the 1930s. He only won because Hillary Clinton was the second most unpopular nominee in the history of polling, and you know he's not some Svengali, you know America whisperer <laughs> who, underst- who who can't be beat. Anybody could beat him. Anybody except Hillary Clinton. Bernie could beat yes. him. Beto could beat him. Um, Warren could beat him. Harris could beat him. I or you could beat him almost certainly. Yep. Yeah. I would Definitely bet physically. money on that. Alexei, twenty twenty.
0: Alexei the Greek, 2020, and and so the thing is, since that's the case, don't worry about that. Worry about forming the candidate that you think we deserve, and and let's 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 go for that. Let's debate that. Let's discuss that. And uh, and this has been a, a fun little thing. So email us, send us um, your tweets, all the different things <laughs> to uh, to let us know your thoughts. Um, and if you can come up with better versions of you, might be a neoliberal if. Um, you know we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those in the next podcast but uh, yeah put, uh, please, please is, send is us fun, your buddy.
1: best jokes so yes, we can have that's some right. funny material
0: <laughs> that's right and um, yeah yeah thanks for listening we appreciate you take care folks see you next time last but not least we have a friendly reminder that we have a patreon You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going.